Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today we're going to talk about the different types of hormonal suppression that a person can take to try to manage their endometriosis symptoms. In the last episode, we talked about what hormonal medication can do and not do. Before we talk about the different types of hormonal medication, let's ask Brittany what hormones can do and not do. A quick recap of last week's episode. Brittany, can hormones remove the endometriosis that you have? No, hormones can definitely not do that. Can your endo still progress while you take hormones? Yes, your endometriosis can still progress while you're taking hormones. Can endo still recur post-surgery even if you're on hormones? Yes, yes it can. Can hormones manage the symptoms of endometriosis? Maybe, hopefully, not in everyone. Can hormones treat the disease itself? No, 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 no. No, 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 (laughs) no. Can hormones diagnose endometriosis? No. Why you keep asking me only no questions? (laughs) Since we have Brittany on a pop quiz here, Brittany, tell us what is the only treatment that can actually remove all the endometriosis from your body? Ooh, more than a yes, no? You're letting me say real answers? Okay, the answer is excision surgery. So today we're going to talk about some different types of hormones and different ways that we can take hormonal suppression for endometriosis, such as the oral contraceptive pill, progestins, GnRH analogs, and the Mirena IUD. So all of these can have different side effects. They have different hormones in them. So we are going to touch on all of that today. Now, as most of us know, not all hormones work to manage symptoms for everyone or to provide everyone with the same relief. So if we're looking into hormonal suppression, then typically there's a bit of trial and error to hopefully find something that manages our symptoms. Additionally, any pain relief that you get is typically only temporary for the time that you're taking the medication. And then once a person goes off the medication, your symptoms typically come back. The first one that we're going to start with is combined hormonal contraceptives. This can be a pill, transdermal patches, or a vaginal ring. We're going to focus on pills for this discussion. And there isn't just one birth control pill that you can take. There's a ton of them. A ton of different combinations, different labels for similar combinations. There's a lot of different birth control pills available. I didn't know that when I first started taking birth control when I was a teenager for my endo symptoms. And then one didn't work, and the doctor was like, here, go on this next one. I was like, next one? Huh? (laughs) How many are there? And then that one didn't work. I was go on this next one. I was like, how many am I going to go on? A lot. Yeah. Too many. I think I was on like five different oral contraceptive pills, not at the same time. Yeah, shopping for birth control is a kind of a common thing where you have to shop around to find one that works for you because there's so many. But you're right. I've seen a lot of commercials on TV for birth control pills, different ones. Mm Mm-hmm. So like we said, there are a lot of birth control pills out there, a lot of oral contraceptive pills. And there are some of them that contain progestin only, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But commonly, oral contraceptive pills contain a a low-dose combination of synthetic estrogen and progestin. Yeah, and it is progestin, not progesterone, although many doctors refer to progestins as progesterone, as we explained in our on our hormone series, they're definitely not the same thing. The progestins in birth control pills are synthetic, and they're not progesterone. Progesterone is our naturally occurring hormone that we have in our body. Everyone likes to keep things confusing for us, obviously, right? I actually don't understand why doctors confuse those, because 
they're like very, very different things. And progestins have science chemical names and progesterone is just called progesterone. That is its science chemical name. (laughs) So I just don't understand why doctors will say like, oh, we're going to put you on progesterone and they're progestins. They like, yes, the point of progestin is to do something similar that progesterone does in the body, but it doesn't do the same thing progesterone does in the body. So like, I guess maybe they just think they do the same thing, but progestins want to mimic progesterone, but they're not progesterone. They don't do all the same things as progesterone, even though they act on the same receptors. So like, ah, it just like really, yeah, it just like really bothers me. They're like, oh yeah, we're going to put you on progesterone. And then you get it. And it's this like long chemical name. You're like, this is progestin. They're not the same. Why is that hard? They're not the same. Also, endometriosis is not the endometrium. Those are not the same. Why is this a hard concept for people? <laughs> also, Medical professionals, could you just maybe like, I don't know, get that stuff right? A yeah. potato is not a carrot. No. <laughs> a square is not a this triangle. This is not tomato, tomato, potato, potato. These are literally two. This is like potato, <laughs> carrot, apple, celery. Like these are not the same thing, okay? Same family, not the same thing. So there's a few different ways that you could use an oral contraceptive pill. Some people use it continuously, so they take it consistently so they don't have a bleed or a withdrawal bleed. And some people find that that's most helpful for their symptoms. So you don't get a period on birth control, but what you can get is called a withdrawal bleed if you stop taking the oral contraceptive pill. So if you don't take it continuously, one of the options is to take it for three weeks, and then for the fourth week, you take a placebo pill. What happens then is not an actual period because you didn't ovulate. It's just a withdrawal bleed. So some people do this to give their body a break from the hormone pills and have that withdrawal bleed. So during that week off from the pills, you get to have some blood. Yay, what a great (laughs) trade-off. Some people choose that as the best option for them. Yeah, actually, when the pill was developed in the 1950s, the people that made the pill thought it would feel more natural for menstruators to have a monthly bleed that, like, mimics their period. And therefore, they could feel reassured that they're not pregnant. So that was the purpose originally of making the three weeks of synthetic hormones. So three weeks on the birth control and then the fourth week, even though like you're taking pills, they're sugar pills so that you have a withdrawal because you're not getting the synthetic hormones. And I mean, like, I guess that's reassuring to know you're not pregnant, but like, I don't want to deal with my blood. (laughs) If I'm not taking birth control to not be pregnant, I do not want that blood. (laughs) (laughs) I do not want that blood. Also, when I was younger, I didn't know that. I think that's being talked about a lot now about how, you know, the quote unquote period that you get taking birth control is not actually a period. It's a withdrawal bleed. But when I was younger, like 15 years ago, I had no idea about that. And I remember some of my friends, like, I think the prom was coming up and they were were all like, oh, yeah, I'm going to skip my period this month for the prom. And like, I'm going to keep just taking my birth control. And I was so shocked, like, oh, my goodness. How could you do that? Like, how can you skip your period? That's not natural. Totally having no clue that. It wasn't even a period. (laughs) That one, yeah, there wasn't even a period and that you're not ovulating and that. Well, of course, because the doctor says like, oh, this will regulate your period, right? So Mm -hmm. I thought I was getting like real hormones and that skipping my quote unquote period on my pill was like really, really bad. And that's how it was kind of told to us that you have to have the bleed, that that's natural, that to stop it is, you know, you need to let your body do that but it's not actually a period. So it's a little silly and a little, I think it's an old kind of, not quite myth thing, but something I think a lot of us were told many years ago and probably still up to today is that you have to have that withdrawal bleed to let your body do its natural thing. But some studies are saying that's not actually the case. Yeah, and that's something to talk to your doctor about. A lot of people find that just taking the oral contraceptive pill continuously for like three or four months and then, you know, having a bleed That's something to talk about with your doctor because some people do better with their pain and with their symptoms when they're not having that withdrawal bleed and they're just having continuous birth control. Some of the benefits of the pill are that it has lower risks than most of the other hormonal methods, and it can be easier to take for some people, easier to remember, uh, more discreet or more accessible than other types of hormones that we'll mention. So those are some of the perks of the pill. And as we said, there's different oral contraceptives, which means there's also different risks involved. So there's actually different types of progestin that are in the combination birth control with the estrogen and the progestin, and there's eight different types of the progestin. So one of those eight types are 
paired with the estrogen in the pills. And this is what categorizes the different types of birth control pills. We've had lots of generations of birth control from the very beginning all the way up until now. And there's currently four generations. Ooh, what do you mean by generations? They age like a fine wine. (laughs) (laughs) So just like there are generations of people, it's when something is introduced to the market. No, wait, I got one. Just like there are generations of iPhones. (laughs) Okay, there you go. Yep, all right, it's like that. It's just like that. So there's four. We're on the fourth gen, okay? It's the OCP4 is where we are right now, okay? But this is for progestins, not like the birth control pill itself. Like the progestins are categorized by generations. Yes, correct. So when you research them, it's like, oh, you know, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, these different types of progestins are first generation, and these are second, and these are third. But that's just when they're introduced to the market. Correct. Newer doesn't always mean better in this case. Well, as with an iPhone, it might doesn't always in this case, but it has to do with when it came onto the market. And each of these generations and each types of progestin are associated with different risks. There's different advantages and there's different disadvantages depending on the type of progestin, the amount, and what generation it is. So while the advantages are of the oral contraceptive pill are that it is relatively cheap, it's typically more accessible, it could be easier to take, It has lower risks than most of the other hormonal methods. It can be taken for an extended amount of time, years even, where other hormones do have a time limit on how long and how often you can take them. And we will mention that when we get to them. Yeah, I think that's a really good advantage is that if you can find a a pill like an oral contraceptive pill that works for you, you could potentially be on that for an extended period of time. So you don't have to like hop around the way, you know, if you take Lupron after one year, Lupron has only been approved for one year. So like after one year, it's like, oh, okay, great. I took Lupron. It worked for me for one year. But like now what? So if you can find an oral contraceptive pill that works for managing your endometriosis symptoms and improving your quality of life, then that could be really good because you could just stay on that for, I mean, working with your doctor, but potentially for years and years. Well, that is why it's important to work with a doctor when it comes to your oral contraceptive pill, because while all those advantages I mentioned do exist, like I said, each type has different disadvantages. It's important to know when you're looking for an oral contraceptive pill, what to look out for in terms of symptoms or what may work better with your body, what may not, other underlying illness that you may have that could contribute to a higher risk. All of that is really important to talk about, especially because typically if you take an oral contraceptive pill, you are on it for an extended amount of time. So working with a doctor to check in about how you're feeling and be aware of your symptoms and making sure that you're informed about the risks and the symptoms that you're going to have with the oral contraceptive pill. A lot of times we may not be aware of the risks that are associated with this pill, but just with any medication there are. And it's important to know so that we can pay attention to our bodies. And if something's not working for us, we can go back and try something different. I think when you said risks and symptoms with birth control, that you meant to say risks and side effects, not symptoms. Brittany's got symptoms on the brain right now, more like brain fog on the brain right now. Me too, by the way. But yeah, I think it's really important to look into potential risks and side effects of any medication that you're on, including the oral contraceptive pill. I think many of us are aware that there can be an increased risk of blood clots, for example, but birth control can also do other things like it can deplete essential vitamins and minerals from your body. It can affect your gut, your liver, your immune system. It can affect your mood and so much more. And that's not to scare anyone, but that's just to be aware. And as far as its efficacy, there's been several randomized controlled trials done that have shown that combined hormonal birth control, so the progestin and estrogen, can improve pain symptoms in the majority of patients and are well-tolerated. Yay! That's good news. Woo! I love the well-tolerated. Well-tolerated is good. It's like a gold star for me. (laughs) And I love the improved pain symptoms. And it's reported that the extended use of them, the continuous one, so not having the withdrawal bleed every four weeks, but instead taking it for 12 weeks and then having a withdrawal bleed, has a greater reduction in symptoms. And that's likely because that extended cyclical use suppresses our ovarian function more reliably than taking it 21 days on and then seven days off. If I was going to be on the oral contraceptive pill, I would not be getting my period. 
Yes, please. <laughs> I'd be yes, like, please. I don't have to bleed for three months. Thank you. I'll take it. Where do I sign up? <laughs> I'll take 20. <laughs> Alas. 20 years worth. Yes. <laughs> All right. Now it's my turn to take over from Brittany. Go for it. Who's not feeling well today, by the way. So I just want to commend here. Brittany for being in the box to talk about hormones. You may notice my voice sounds a little weird, but I'm here. So I'm does mine. Because I like to do whatever Brittany does. As soon as I heard her, she had kind of like laryngitis. I was like, oh, I feel so strange in my voice. I can't too. talk either. <laughs> I'm perfectly safe and healthy and fine. Just, you know, a little under the weather. Thanks for letting me be here anyway. So like usual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just in different ways. <laughs> All right. Now we want to talk about progestins. So progestins are synthetic and they're made in a lab and they're meant to act like progesterone in the body. But to be clear, they are not progesterone no matter what so many doctors say. Progestins are not equal to progesterone. And progestins don't do everything that progesterone does in the body because, once more, it's not progesterone. <laughs> you get it, Brittany. I get it. <laughs> you get it. Progestins were designed to interact with progesterone receptors in the body in order to cause progesterone-like effects. So basically, they're like progesterone wannabes. And they do some of what progesterone does. They dress like progesterone. They talk like progesterone. If progesterone has laryngitis, progestins are like, yeah, we have laryngitis too. Oh, so I'm the progesterone and you're the progestin? Wow, this is the biggest compliment you've ever paid to me. You're right. Wow. I'm, I think I can retire early. I'm the progesterone-like <laughs> substance. Oh my gosh, she wants to be like And you're me. the queen bee progesterone. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's the biggest compliment Amy's ever given me. <laughs> Progestins are generally safer and cheaper than GnRH drugs. We're going to get on to talking about GnRH drugs in a minute, which are typically things like Lupron, Orlisa, Zolidex, Cineril, etc. So progestins are generally safer and cheaper than GnRH drugs. And many doctors put their patients on progestins. And just as Brittany explained earlier, there are various types of progestins. I think it's just worth repeating that the side effects and the severity of those side effects that we can have when taking progestins, they vary from progestin to progestin. So it really depends on the chemical nature of the drug and the dosage used. So just because one progestin doesn't really work for you doesn't mean that maybe another progestin won't help you or won't help manage your symptoms or won't cause such side effects as this other one that you're taking did. Side effects of progestins are typically reversible, but long-term use can cause bone mineral density loss. So it's really important that you talk to your doctor about the side effects of progestins and you read the medication's package insert. And you also talk to your doctor about having a bone mineral density scan periodically to check your bone density if you're on progestins for a prolonged period of time. I have a question for you, Amy. Does that side effect of bone mineral density loss and advice of getting a scan for it apply if you're taking an oral contraceptive pill that contains progestin? Oh my gosh, Brittany put me on the spot. And I I'm, did. And I'm not a doctor, as we all know. So my understanding, and just going off the top of my head here, is no, because the combined oral contraceptive pill also has the synthetic estrogen in it. So it's synthetic estrogen and progestin. Whereas like when you take progestins, it's progestin only. So it affects the body differently. But that is a great question to ask to your doctor. But I haven't like seen or read anything saying that when you take oral contraceptives, you should do a bone mineral density scan. I've only seen that related to progestins. And like I know that the Depo-Provera box, I'm pretty sure has the black box warning for bone mineral density loss. So like if you're on Depo-Provera, which is a type of progestin, a shot for a long time, it's recommended to get these bone density scans. But I haven't heard that for, for the oral contraceptive pill. And I also want to say that the fact that Depo-Provera now has a black box warning on it to say about like potential bone mineral density loss, just like really... Grinds your gears? Yeah, like really <laughs> just like, 
irritates me. I wonder why. Well, as I've told this story many, many times, a long time ago in 2004, which, by the way, ironically, I'm pretty sure is the year that the black box warning got onto Depo-Provera. My doctor was like, oh, you should take Depo-Provera because you have these weird symptoms, blah, blah. You know, it's going to help you and it's your only option. But why did she recommend the Depo-Provera? Because I had chocolate cysts, which she didn't think were endometriosis. I mean, the whole thing, (laughs) to be honest, when I look back at that period of my life, I'm like, this is so complicated, and like Ugh. these doctors had no clue what they were doing. And she, but was, what she told you about the depo is what what is why this is the one two punch in the face. Yeah, she said there were no side effects. Zero. She, she was like, "Oh, there are no side effects because it's progestins only." She probably said progesterone. <laughs> Let's be honest. Let's be honest. <laughs> She'd have been right on that one, but She's she like, was this not. This is a shot of progesterone, and I swear to you, there are no side effects. <laughs> And the internet was, like, at its beginning back then. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, I actually, at that time, I did not want to research my medication because cause I had thought about, like, leaving the office and going to find an internet because you didn't have, like, internet in your pocket. Gotta go to the time. library. You know? <laughs> well, we had internet at home, but you didn't have, like, smartphones and mm-hmm. stuff then. So she was like, oh, do you want to take it? And I was just sitting there. I was 19 years old. I was by myself in the appointments. All my appointments, I was by myself. And... I remember, like, thinking, oh, I want to go, like, read about this. But then I was like, no, what if I trick myself and I, like, read about some side effects and then I convince myself that I'm going to have those side effects. So I should just Psych go in out. unknowing. I should just go in unknowing because I don't want to, like, yeah, I don't want to psych myself out because at that time I'd been two years sick and all the doctors were all like, there's nothing wrong with you. You're a hypochondriac. There's nothing wrong with you. You're making it up. And I was like, oh, my God, I make up so many symptoms. What if I make on a reverse what placebo if I make... yourself? Yeah. So I was like, no, 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 I'm not going to look it up. And then I took the shot with full faith that the shot was going to help me. Like, I really believed I was like, I'm believing. I went in really believing, like trusting that this was going to be the thing that helps my symptoms. And like two weeks later, I was so sick. And then I Googled, like I was like, okay, time to Google Depo-Provera. And like this forum, it was back in the days of forums. This forum came up on Depo-Provera and it was just like so many people sharing about the difficult side effects and that they were facing, which again, not everyone has side effects. As we said, these all affect people differently. So just because I had a bunch of side effects, there are many people who Depo-Provera really works for them. But um, yeah. So I just like hearing, hearing that it's like, really? It has From no black- symptoms <laughs> to the black box of symptoms. Yeah. What was wrong with that lady? Uh, well, where do you want me to start? How long do we have? <laughs> Well, I think that's really honestly why it is so important to read that medical insert. I know whenever I get medication, I'm like, chuck it. I just need the meds. But really, it is important to read it because our doctors don't remember everything about a medication, nor do they share information about us that they should. So that insert in the medication box, or even you can find it online if you've lost the box, it's important to read it because it does tell you everything to look out for and be prepared for, as well as the risks. And reading those has really helped me. I've, you know, As a person with anxiety, I have to be careful (laughs) with what I can convince myself of, but it has helped me to understand when I'm making a decision, what I'm when I'm weighing something and just what to look out for. And that has been very helpful. So always highly recommend slogging through that insert in your medication box. Well, and I just think to keep talking for a minute about side effects is that I just think too often that the birth control, some type of birth control, whether that's a birth control pill or progestins or Many, many people go to the doctor, including young people, adolescents, teenagers, go to the doctor looking for birth control, like to actually prevent pregnancy or looking for birth control because they're having trouble with their menstruation, cramps, bleeding, all these things. And it's wonderful that we can have these birth controls that can help us with, you know, either not getting pregnant or, or like a gynecological issue. But what's not wonderful is just how they're given out so readily like candy without any kind of conversation around them. And that's just something that it's just so important that our doctors, when they give us these medications, like, yes, these medications can be really, really helpful, but they can and do have side effects, especially with our mental health, in our body, the way that, you know, we feel brain fog, migraines, bloating, weight gain, anxiety, depression. 
spotting throughout your cycle. Like there's so many different side effects. And for too often, people experiencing the side effects have been either told, oh, no, birth controls don't have side effects or, oh, well, just suck it up. You'll get used to it or it will go away. And that I was told so many times when I went back to my doctor complaining of the side effects, my doctors were like, oh, well, you need to stick with this birth control for at least six months. And I was having migraines so bad that I I was in high school. I couldn't do my homework. I couldn't concentrate. I was having brain fog. I was severely depressed. My mental health was really screwed up. And it was like, oh, this has only been a, a month. And like, yes, I get your body needs time to adjust. But like, really, you want me to be going through this for five more months to see if my body adjusts? Like, no, this is when it's time to have a conversation. Like, this pill is making me way too sick and I want to try another pill. So I just think it's really important to go in armed with knowledge and trusting our bodies. And, you know, if we're taking something and we notice that it affects our mental health or we notice that it's giving us migraines or whatever else, oh, the birth controls were giving me a lot of like vaginal infections, yeast infections. It was horrible. Like it was horrible to be on birth control. And I was just gaslit. Like, well, this is what you have to do to regulate your period, which we know they don't regulate your period. But, you know, I had extreme menstrual pain because of endometriosis, which was undiagnosed. And it was like, well, just suck it up. That's what we that's what we can offer you. You know, we can offer you this pill and you got to be on it for at least three months before I'll consider changing it. It's like, oh, my gosh, what is this torture? You know, like, I I won't change your medication that's making you extraordinarily sick until you've been very, very sick from it for at least three months. That's because they don't trust you or your report of your body. That's really the truth of that, unfortunately. They were like, you're taking this medication for Everybody else can deal with the side effects. Why can't you? You're taking this medication for really severe menstrual pain, which we know you don't have in the first place because people don't have really severe menstrual pain. And when they do, it's just totally normal. Just a bad period. So just go ahead and take this medication, this birth control for it. And even though it makes you really, really sick and you still have the really bad menstrual pain and now additionally you have migraines and you have diarrhea and you have brain fog and you feel like there's an ice pick behind your eyeballs, I really don't think that's what's happening to you because I don't even think you had menstrual pain in the first place. So if you just keep on it. If you just stop talking office, because I don't believe anything you say anyway, <laughs> it'd be really great if you just let me prescribe whatever I want and then just take it. That would be really wonderful. Thank you. Leave my office. You're a difficult patient. You're mm-hmm. combative. Mm-hmm. No, that's called advocating for myself and trusting my body. Not when I want to treat you like a little robot human and not like an actual mm-hmm. human with various and diverse side effects. Mm-mm. Doesn't fit into my narrative. All right, now that we sufficiently got angry over the side effects that we're not often told about with these kinds of medications, we will move on to continue talking about progestins to say that at the dosages that are typically used for endometriosis, many people do stop ovulating and they stop menstruating when taking progestins. People may have some spotting in the first couple of months and then they may stop their periods or have a lighter period than they normally would if they were not on progestins. If your period stops, does it stop forever? That would be the dream. Oh, so I'm awake. (laughs) That's not the truth. Pinch me and there's blood. (laughs) (laughs) Typically after stopping progestins, people's periods usually resume within a couple of weeks, several weeks. But, oh, wait for it, with good old Depo, Medroxyprogesterone acetate, which is Depo-Provera, my favorites. Progesterone shot in the whole world. Some people will not see their cycle resume until the drug is gone from their body, which can vary from person to person. Can I say that after I took Depo, I did not get my period back for over a year. And I just took one shot of Depo. and So it's a shot that you get every three months. And I didn't take the next shot, even though the doctor was like, but you should take the next shot. Like, do you ever listen when I talk? Like, do you hear me when I talk? No. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the doctor Charlie Brown. (laughs) And then she told me, well, think of the bright side. When you were on it, you weren't throwing up. And then I was like, throwing (laughs) throwing up was never a symptom of mine. No. Having diarrhea was my main symptom. Oh, yeah, I should have written that down in your file, I suppose. Are you looking at the right chart for the right Yeah, your chart has nothing because I just didn't believe anything you said. So (laughs) it's blank. (laughs) I laugh so I don't cry. (laughs) It's just a smiley face with a tongue out like, (laughs) that's all that's in your chart. Peace sign, smiley face. (laughs) 
And it would seem like, I mean, having a period is can be really hard work with endometriosis. And my period is definitely its own like battle. So you would think that not getting my period for a whole year after stopping the shot was a blessing. But in reality, I just continued to have side effects of Depo-Provera until my ovarian hormone functioning returned to normal. So I just continued to have effects with my mental health, to feel depressed and anxious. And it really was not a happy, a happy year. It would feel like no more hormones be like, yay. But it was more like (laughs) crying into handkerchiefs nonstop. And something to keep in mind, which Amy kind of mentioned for her, it took about a year for her cycle to resume after she took the one shot of the Depo-Provera progestins. If you're planning to try to conceive in the near future, the injection of progestin may not be the best option for you. So that's something to keep in mind as well. All right, let me tell you about some different progestins. You can get the tablets. Mmm. Tasty. Put it on the top. A common brand that many of us know about is Vizan, which is Danagest. Then you can get the long-lasting injection, Boop. the shot. As we've been talking about, a brand for this is Depo-Provera, which is Depo-Medroxyprogesterone Acetate. Or you could get the T-shaped intrauterine device, also known as the IUD. An example of this is the Mirena coil, which I think a lot of us use here in the endometriosis community, which releases levonorgestrel. There's also the contraceptive implants, and a brand of that is Nexplanon. Wow, there are a lot of ways to get progestins in the body. Yes, there are. You can do a tablet, you can do a shot, you can do an IUD, you can do an implant. Is there an anal suppository at this point? I mean, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't found one yet, but maybe. Is there an eardrop? I don't know. Maybe? (laughs) That seems a little odd, but maybe. Some nail polish, perhaps? Oh, that would be brilliant. You could always have excellent looking nails and get your regularly scheduled dose of progestin. So you just named a slew of progestins. Well, I only named four, but a yeah. A slew oh, of okay. progestins. Yeah, sure. So which one is the best one? Look at Brittany. She always just makes everything into a competition. Which one is the best Well, if I'm going to take something, I want to know what's worth taking. Uh, That's true. Uh, Thank you. uh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there really is no best progestin in spite of what some drug companies may want you to believe. So that you'll buy their product. (laughs) There was a review on available progestins for endometriosis management, which was done by Bugio and other researchers. So the material used in their review was from different studies on PubMed from PubMed's starting date of 1996 to February 2017. And their review included progestins that were both oral and injections. It also included oral norestrone acetate, Dienagest, dorsogestrel, ciprotrone acetate, depomedroxyprogesterone acetate, which is depoprovera, as well as the levonorgestrel-releasing intrauterine system, which is the IUD, something like Mirena. And then it also included the estronorestrial subdermal implant. Okay. Woo! That was a lot. Which is like the Nexplanon, right? Yeah. Well, that's a brand name, so it doesn't have to be that one. But yeah, that's like Nexplanon. So basically, in their review, they looked at progesterones that were oral and injections and intrauterine devices and implants. So they looked at the four different ones that that I named the slew that Brittany heard. The slew. The slew. <laughs> this one really did look at a slew. Yeah. This did. one was like, wow. And the researchers concluded that all of the available progestins are effective in controlling pain symptoms in two-thirds of people with endometriosis. And they said that there wasn't enough robust data to say that one progestin was better than the other. So they concluded that oral norestrone acetate should be considered first by the patient just because of the favorable cost-effectiveness profile, but not based on, like, 
you know, other factors. Yeah, like not based on like it's the best. They were just like, oh, this one is really cost effective, accessible and cost effective. Woo! Then you know, go for this one. But I think really what that review is showing is that you know they reviewed all this literature from PubMed, all these different studies, and they found that basically progestins work for two thirds of people with endo. So when it comes to choosing a progestin, it's really just like. What are you most comfortable with? Do you want to have a shot in your body? Do you want to have the IUD? Do you want to take something oral? Do you want to have an implant? What are the different side effects and risk profiles of these different options? And like everything, it probably comes down to doing trial and error for your body and just seeing like what is the best option for you. And something I want to add is that some people find that the IUD works really well for them. At the beginning. So, like, for example, maybe they're taking the Mirena and the Mirena is managing their symptoms really well in the first one to two years. But then after that, like, the results that they're seeing are diminished. So, if that's your case, you may want to talk to your doctor about replacing your IUD more frequently than people typically replace it. So, I think the Mirena, for example, is replaced like every five years. But some people find that if they replace their IUD every two years, they see better symptom management with their endometriosis. So that's like, of course, that would be trial and error because that's not the same for everyone. And if you are going to replace it more frequently than recommended, you may want to check in with your insurance to see if they'll cover that. So we've heard that two-thirds of people have had effective symptom management on progestins. (gasps) Where'd you hear that from? You. Oh. Me. My no, brain? me. My big left toe told me. <laughs> <laughs> you. Well, there was another study done that compared oral norethisterone acetate and Diana Just. Oh, wait, I'm going to interrupt. So oral norethisterone acetate, which we're probably not pronouncing correctly, was what they said in the other, like in that slew, that review slew. of the slew of studies where they were like, oh, that could be a patient's first choice because of the cost effectiveness profile. So they compared that and they compared Deanna Jest, which is also brand name Vizan. This is another study Brittany's talking about comparing that one and comparing Deanna Jest. And what did that study find? <laughs> well, that study found <laughs> that 70% of the people that took the oral norethisterone acetate and 72% of the people that took the Deanna Jest were satisfied with these drugs for their symptom management. Ooh, such a close competitive ranking 70 and 72 percent so essentially again two-thirds of the people who took these were satisfied with them for symptom management and that leaves 30 percent or one person out of three that unfortunately was not satisfied with the effectiveness of progestins for their symptom management oh why Brittany? why speculate on why why are two-thirds of us having Effective symptom management on progestins and one-third of us. Well, to speculate, it could be that way because of progesterone resistance. Mm, The progesterone resistance. Yes. We talked about this in our episode about how endo is not the endometrium. That studies indicate that some endometriosis lesions may not respond to progesterone or progestins due to altered progesterone receptors. So while people with endometriosis have similar levels of progesterone as those without endometriosis, the endolesions often have a lower level of progesterone receptors. And the expression of the progesterone receptors that they do have is often altered. Gasp. And therefore, the receptor doesn't respond the same way to progesterone that it should or typically would. How dare that receptor not do the things it was supposed to do? It tracks for everything else in our bodies, does it not? (laughs) Which is sad. Endolesions often have less progesterone receptors, and they don't work the way that they should. Rude. So when progesterone binds with the receptors, biological and chemical processes are supposed to happen... But with progesterone resistance, they don't happen. So progesterone or progestins don't actually have the effect that they should if we didn't have the progesterone resistance. Mm, It all makes sense to me now. Sadly. Mm. Well, the good thing is at least two-thirds of people find progestins to be effective. Although it leaves one-third of people who who are not satisfied with progestins, it's good that at least two-thirds are. 
Now we're going to talk about the GNRH analogs. Ooh, melodic. (laughs) (laughs) So there are GNRH agonists and antagonists, which when you think about it, it's kind of like, why would you want anything to agonize or antagonize in your body? (laughs) Here's a medication that's going to agonize or antagonize. Everything already agonizes and antagonizes my body. Why do I want more things to do that? I mean, that's just what they're called, but it just kind of cracks me up, right? So all of the GnRH agonists are very similar chemically, but they come in different forms. We have the three-month injection, the monthly injection, the daily injection, and the nasal spray. Bet you were not expecting the nasal spray. No, no, I was not. We have the nasal injection. No, just kidding. So look at that. You can get hormones through your nose. So where is the eardrop? So the eardrops, yeah, they sound legit. <laughs> Where's the nail polish? GnRH agonists are things like Lupron, Zolodex, Cinerel, Prostrap, and others. And then we have our good old GnRH antagonists, and this is something like Orlissa. So what these drugs do is they put you into a medical menopause by affecting the way that your brain talks to your ovaries on the hypothalamus pituitary gonadal axis, or the HPG axis. Essentially, these medications work to block the production of ovarian-stimulating hormones. Although the agonists and the antagonists work in slightly different ways in the body, the end result is that they block the production of ovarian-stimulating hormones. Now, Brittany and I did a full five episodes on Lupron and Orlissa back in the episodes like 30 to 37. So if you are considering taking Lupron or Orlissa, we really, really encourage you to go back because there are so many, so much information in those episodes. And we really dissect a lot of studies around them. We talk about their effectiveness, the lawsuits against Lupron, the independent reports about Orlissa. And then we also talk about the potential serious long-term irreversible side effects of Lupron. And, you know, when it comes to Orlissa, since the drug only came out in 2018, it's too new for us to know about the potential long-term side effects. So Lupron and Orlissa are very serious drugs. And depending on the drug and depending on the dose, there is a time limit for how long we should be on these drugs. Now, the FDA only approved Lupron for six months without ADBAC treatment and 12 months total if ADBAC is used in the second six months. And ADBAC therapy is a medication that you take at the same time as the GnRH agonist. So it's typically a low-dose estrogen or a progestin or tibolone to prevent bone loss and to help with the side effects from having low estrogen. And so even though the FDA has only approved these medications for a year, many doctors have their patients on Lupron for an extended period of time for years and years. And many patients are not even aware because their doctors haven't informed them that this medication is only approved for a short period of time. And that's because of the potential of bone mineral density loss and other long-term side effects. What about Orlissa, Brittany? How long has Orlissa been approved for? Orlissa has been approved for six months at the high dose and two years for the low dose. This medication has not been approved by the FDA for longer than that, and especially not for a lifelong taking of Orlissa. Yes, yeah, someone wrote us the other day and said that her doctor told her that she could be on Orlissa for life. <laughs> That's really scary because that's absolutely not true. Orlissa has not been approved to be on for life. It's been approved for two years, and they don't even have long-term research on Orlissa and studies even on Orlissa for two years, like for being on it for two years. So it just, it continues to astound me, although not surprise me, but like disappoint me how misinformed these doctors are about the medications or they're just playing by their own rules at this point. <laughs> who, who makes that up like that? I mean, were they told that or did they just say, eh, we're just going to tell you you can be on it for life? Like, where did that information come from? I feel like it's what we talked about in a previous episode where we said, like, 
So many of these doctors just don't have tools to treat endometriosis. And so when you go to them and they're like, oh, okay, wow, you have endometriosis or you have symptoms that I, you know, suspect endometriosis and they don't know about excision or they don't believe in excision, you know, so they're like, um, hmm, what do I have available to treat this patient? Ooh, I have this medication. You took Lupron for a year and, oh, you're still in pain. Now what? Oh, we'll just keep you on it. Another year goes by. These medications are not approved for long-term use, and so many doctors are putting us on them because they don't have any more tools up their sleeve when what they should be doing is referring the patient to someone more qualified, not being like, let me play medication roulette with you. If you have been told to stay on Lupron or Orlissa or have decided to stay on Lupron or Orlissa or have been taking Lupron or Orlissa for longer than the FDA-recommended time limit, and didn't know that maybe that was not the recommended time limit. It's definitely recommended to speak to your doctor about having a bone density scan to periodically check your bone density. And if you've been taking Lupron or Alyssa for an extended amount of time, and this is the first you're hearing of it, it's definitely important to do that. So one of the other issues with Lupron and Orlissa is that they have a very serious side effect profile. Many people who take Lupron or Orlissa they find those drugs to be intolerable. And a lot of doctors are not starting conversations with their patients about the serious potential side effects or serious potential long-term side effects that can continue even after stopping the drug. So the reason why Brittany and I talked about oral contraceptive pills and progestins first is that these are generally safer and have a lower side effect profile than the GnRH drugs. Actually, GnRH drugs are supposed to be second-line treatments. So what that means is that they're supposed to be prescribed when the first-line treatments are ineffective, not tolerated, or contraindicated. So first-line treatments are things like progestins and oral contraceptive pills. So those are considered first-line therapies for endometriosis, and GnRH is considered second-line therapies. And we just heard about how two-thirds of people with endometriosis find effective symptom management with first-line therapies, with oral contraceptive pills, or with progestins. So I just don't understand why are we skipping the first-line therapies and why are we rushing the patient to a GnRH drug, which has a higher side effect profile. And additionally, it has a time limit of how long the patients can even be on them. Right. So it's like, as we were saying with birth controls or progestins, you can typically be on them for an extended period of time. But like, if the first thing we, the doctor tells you to try is Lupron and you can only be on it for a year, it's like, where are you at after a year? The medication may have worked for you and you may have found it tolerable to be on it. And that's wonderful. But then what do you do after a year? GnRH medications really should be used as rescue medications. So when the person tried oral contraceptive pills or the IUD or progestins or, you know, various ones, and it didn't work for them, it didn't give them effective symptom management, it didn't improve the quality of life, then that's when the doctor can be like, oh, I have this other option up my sleeve, GnRH drugs, second-line therapies. There's also been various studies done that have actually found that other hormones on the market give comparative pain relief. So first line versus second line comparison is adequate. So this means that taking something like a GnRH isn't necessary if the first line does an adequate response in terms of pain and symptom relief. The GnRH drugs were compared in studies against the Depo-Provera, Danazole, the IUDs, Dianagest, and probably more. Those are just the ones we know about. The studies have found that those other methods, which are first-line methods, are just as effective for those pain symptoms. So these studies are essentially saying that the GnRH drugs are no better or no more effective than the first line of treatment. So there's no reason for us to be skipping the first line of treatment, which has a much lower risk and side effect profile, to go straight to GnRH drugs, which have a much higher risk and side effect profile, when that first line is just as effective. In the majority of patients. We want to have a quote from 
ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, from the practice bulletin number 114, Management of Endometriosis. So this is a bulletin that doctors use in order to look at the management and treatment of endometriosis. And they say in their practice bulletin, and I quote, quote, a Cochrane review found little to no difference between GnRH agonist and other medications for endometriosis, suggesting again that this regimen is not recommended as a primary treatment approach. End quote. Wow, ACOG. Wow. <laughs> All right. You know what? Usually I'm a rag on ACOG because <laughs> they're pretty misinformed about endometriosis and they have misinformation just pasted around their website. But today, I'm going to give them a point for that one. Now, of course, ACOG says it's not a primary treatment approach to use a GnRH agonist like Lupron. And yet, that's what we're seeing happening. That's why we're discussing it today. Oh, that is very, very much what we are seeing happening. It's literally in a bulletin that goes to obstetricians and gynecologists, yet they are not doing what is being recommended to them by their own board. Ha! That's funny. And as we know, the tools that regular gynecologists have are extremely limited, the awareness and education they have when it comes to endometriosis. So it's very overwhelming, and they may not know what to do, and they just knee-jerk react in some cases or think that this is the only option that they can offer. And they hear about this drug because representatives came and told them about this drug, and so that's what they recommend because that's all they know how to do. Even though their own ACOG tells them not to do that, (laughs) that's what they do anyway. And the European guidelines, so the ESHRE guidelines, also recommend that GnRH drugs, both agonists and antagonists, so things like Lupron and Orlissa, are prescribed as second line. So if you go to your doctor and they say that they suspect you have endometriosis and the first thing they want to do is put you on Orlissa or Lupron, then open up a conversation with their doctor if that's not what you want to do. It may be worth exploring if you want to go on progestins or oral contraceptive pills first, if you haven't been on those already, or if you are on those and, you know, one of those is not working for you, maybe to try something different. If you're on an oral contraceptive pill, maybe try a progestin only. If you're taking an oral progestin, maybe try the IUD. So there are different options out there available to us. And That's why we wanted to do this episode because so many times we just go to our doctor and the doctor is just like hyper-focused on this one drug. The doctor's like, oh, I think you might have the symptoms of endo or, oh, we saw this, you know, what we think is an endometrium on an ultrasound and here, take X medication. And there's no discussion. It's just like, this is the medication the doctor recommends maybe to all their patients. And maybe that's not the right medication for you. Maybe you don't want to go on our list right away. Maybe you would rather try a progestin or try the IUD, or maybe you do want to go on our list right away, and that's okay too. But there are options out there, and there are way more options than the majority of regular gynecologists. The first gynecologists that we see, they often are not aware that all these different hormonal suppressions can do a pretty, have the same effectiveness in the majority of patients at alleviating or reducing symptoms. So that's a really good conversation to open up with your doctor because so many doctors just say, we think you have endo, go on Orlissa. That's all we can offer you is Orlissa. And it's like, there's so much more that could be offered. And maybe, yes, they cannot offer excision because they're not surgeons, but you know, hopefully there could be dialogues about other types of medications that you can use to try to manage your symptoms. So now we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the safety of GnRH drugs, and we will start with Orlissa or Elagalix. So we don't actually know a ton about the long-term safety of Orlissa because it only came out in 2018, which is three to four years ago. But we do know that the side effects are quite serious, and we've mentioned one, which is the bone mineral density loss. There's also other serious side effects like abnormal liver tests, suicidal ideation and behavior, worsening of mood, including depression and anxiety. And in fact, on Orlissa's website, they actually state the following quote, which is, quote, Orlissa can cause serious side effects, including suicidal thoughts, actions or behavior, and worsening of mood. 
Call your healthcare provider or get emergency medical help right away if you have any of these symptoms, especially if they are new, worse, or bother you. Thoughts about suicide or dying, attempts to commit suicide, new or worse depression or anxiety, or other unusual changes in behavior or mood. You or your caregiver should pay attention to any changes, especially sudden changes in your mood, behaviors, thoughts, or feelings, end quote. Those are very serious side effects. Very serious side effects that can be especially pervasive and hard to recognize in ourselves sometimes when it comes to mood disorders, especially if they're pre-existing. If we're already living with anxiety and depression, the worsening of those symptoms due to a medication can be really hard to identify and pinpoint. And they can be especially hard to reach out and get help for because that is the nature of anxiety and depression. So these side effects are extremely serious for those reasons because they can cause changes to us that are really hard for us to recognize in ourselves, which means that in terms of safety, that is a large risk for people with no history of mental health, but also, and maybe even a little bit more so, for people with a history of mental health. Well, that's why I wanted to bring attention to that, because as we keep saying throughout the episode, these medications can be really helpful for people with endometriosis. They can help people, not everyone, But for some people, they do help us have a better quality of life, get through our day with less pain, with reduced pain, be able to hold a job. So Brittany and I do believe that there is a place for hormonal suppression within endometriosis management. As we've said so many times, medications do not treat the disease, but but they may be able to help manage our symptoms. And when we're living every single day with pain, incapacitating pain, relentless pain, different kinds of pain, different kinds of symptoms, and we find something that works for us to better a quality of life, to help us better get through our day, that helps us have more good days than bad days, then that's something really wonderful. And Brittany and I embrace that and we support whatever decision that you make for yourself. But we really, really just want to make sure that people are aware of the different side effects. And we really wanted to call that one to light because as Brittany said, that if a medication is messing with your mood or causing anxiety and depression, your thoughts can change. And then it can be difficult to recognize that you are suffering from the side effect of a certain medication. And I know my own case that happened when I was on Depo-Provera. I had a worsening of my mood. I had an onset of depression and anxiety. And I had a lot of paranoia and a lot of like intrusive thoughts, weird thoughts, weird feelings. And at the beginning, I didn't know that that was the medication doing that. I I thought that like, I don't know, I, I just didn't know what was going on. And it was very confusing. And luckily, I was able to figure out, oh, that is my medication. But there are a lot of people who are on different kinds of birth controls who go off of birth control and they see that their mood improves. You know, when they're on birth control, they may not be realizing, or on hormones, they may not be realizing that the hormones are affecting their mood or causing depression, causing anxiety. And I think this is being talked about more and more, and that's a really good thing to know is that hormones can affect our mood. And as we see with our Alyssa, they specifically state on their website about suicidal thoughts, actions, or behaviors. And that's very serious. So that is something to know about and, you know, let your loved ones know about when starting a medication so that they too can be looking out for signs of changes in your mood. And now to move to Lupron. We actually did an entire episode on the topic of Lupron side effects. Yes, we did. Because it is quite intensive and there's a lot of information that's very important to consider. And it is worth an entire hour of dedicated time to talk about the serious potential side effects. Absolutely. And to give some quick highlights of that episode, if you want a refresher or you haven't listened to it yet, we mentioned some resources in there like Lupron Victims, Lupron Survivors, Lupron Warriors. Those are three Facebook groups that are available to people who have taken Lupron and have had side effects that are extreme or severe. There's also a website called lupronvictimshub.com, which was started by Lynn Milliken. 
She took Lupron, and her health was negatively and permanently affected by its usage, and she's put together a wealth of information exploring the misuse, misinformation, malpractice, lawsuits, fraud, etc. around Lupron. During the lawsuit trial against Lupron in 2011 that Dr. David Redwine was a medical witness to, there was a report done by Dr. Gurigian, quote, a former FDA medical officer involved with the initial 1985 FDA approval of Lupron for palliative treatment of prostate cancer and retired professor of pharmacology, end quote. That's who he is. And he says in the report that, quote, TAP, so TAP is the original makers of Lupron, did not adequately warn the prescribing physician and their patients about all the risks, dangers, long-term and irreversible side effects associated with the use of Lupron due to misleading, all-embracing, extremely broad, vague, and equivocal terms in the written Lupron warnings. TAP failed to put warnings in the Lupron labeling about known adverse side effects, which were reported to the FDA's Adverse Events Reporting System, otherwise known as MedWatch, and which were known through medical literature and the endometriosis community, end quote. Oh, wow. Yeah. I he just roasted them. I, yeah, that's, <laughs> wow. He went for it. We don't mention these things to do like scaremongering of Lupron or of Orlissa when we talk about the side effects. So, you know, we really do want to stress that like we're not in this episode to just be like, these are horrible drugs that will do horrible things to you. Again, we recognize their place in endometriosis management. But we see every single day that patients are not being informed of side effects. Patients are being put on these medications for way longer than has been approved by the FDA. That patients are put on these medications right away as first-line therapies when we've just discussed that they're actually second-line. Then they should be used as second-line rescue medications. So that really is our sole purpose. And this is kind of like a quick speed through. So, you know, we're trying to like go quickly and not be here for five hours. And we've already done episodes on Orlis and Lupron. So this is just like the hormone highlight. Ooh, I like mm-hmm. it. Should I call the episode that? <laughs> yes. This is just like the quick hormone highlight to say like these are some of your options available. And these are the different efficacies that have been found. And these are some of the side effects. And just put that all on the table so that then you can go and make your best decision working with your doctor about what is best for you, but keeping in mind that a lot of doctors don't even know this stuff. Yeah. When Amy and I talk about things, especially hormones, our goal is to never persuade or dissuade you in any kind of way. That's not our place, and we're not your medical professional, and we're not you. Our purpose is to make sure that you have access to the information because we know from our personal experience and from others in the community telling us that access to information is limited poor, unavailable when it comes to what we receive from our doctors. So our goal is always to inform you of the pros, cons, risks, and benefits of everything that we talk about, not to convince you of or convince you out of anything. And this is just like the quick highlight. So of course, there's so much more. And that's why we encourage you to do your own independent research and speak with your doctor. And all the different sources that we use to make this episode are on our website, which is in 16years.com. And you can refer to all the different Lupron or Lissa pages on hormones. So you can go look at the information for yourself. You can go look at the Orlissa prescribing information. You can actually look at the report done by Dr. Gregorian that Brittany just quoted from. So we really encourage you to take, you know, what we're presenting here today and go further with it and explore further. The last hormone medication that we're going to talk about today is aromatase inhibitors. And what these do is they decrease the amount of estrogen in your body by inhibiting the aromatase enzyme, which is another way that the body makes estrogen. And actually, endometriosis lesions have a high level of aromatase activity. And as we know, they can make their own estrogen via the aromatase enzyme. Aromatase inhibitors are not usually first-line therapies, and they're often used in menopausal patients because after menopause, estrogen is mostly made via the aromatase enzyme and not through the ovaries. I think the important thing to take away from the discussion around hormones and using hormones for symptom management is that first line and what is in that first line option. 
Like Amy and I said earlier in the episode, GnRH drugs are not more effective than first-line methods. And keeping that in mind is really important because that means that we can make a decision that lowers our risk profile or our symptom profile. And that's really important to us because who wants to add horrible side effects onto our endometriosis pain and symptoms? Nobody wants to do that. So I think that's really important to keep in mind that there are different tiers to how extreme some medications may be, how risky some medications may be, and that there's so many different kinds and they can work differently with our bodies. The helpful thing about something like an oral contraceptive pill and the way that they're formulated is that there are many different ways. And one may work for us, but not work for our friend, which one may work for them that doesn't work for us. There's so many different options and different ways to attempt those that I do think it's important that we exhaust those options if we choose to use hormonal treatment for symptom management before we move on to the second line, like GnRH drugs. It's important to do that because that can lower the risks for many of us and help us to find something that may work for us more long-term, because as we know, GnRH drugs are not long-term solutions. So that's really important to know that when talking about hormones, there's different ways that we can take them. There's different versions of them. There's different formulations and different efficacy amounts. And all of that is important to know when talking to your doctor about what to take and what will work for your body. And even though this episode is about hormones, we do want to say that in terms of symptom management, which is all hormones can offer for endometriosis anyway, because hormones do not treat the disease, in terms of non-hormonal options for symptom management, there's also things like acupuncture, exercise, which could be things like slow daily movement, stretching, yoga, foam rolling. There's diet change. Many people go on an anti-inflammatory diet. Getting better sleep can help with your symptoms and help with your pain because we know that a lack of sleep can directly contribute to pain levels and, of course, to fatigue. Having stress management, taking supplements. So there are also other options. If a person, you know, if you don't want to go the hormonal route to symptom management, then you can also look into non-hormonal options. So we just wanted to throw that out there. And of course, what you would need would be individual to you. So diet changes or the exercise you choose, the way that you have stress management would be individual to you and personalized to you. And oftentimes it's just once more trial and error. And, you know, it would be great if there was a manual. And I think there just can't be a manual because we're all different and we're all inhabiting different bodies. But I think there's a similar template. And that's just trying to improve your overall health, have less inflammation, have better sleep, control your stress, manage your stress, reduce your stress, just things that like can generally help human beings overall. So we want to leave you with a question today. What do you think would be the best way to get hormones into your body? Are you all about the nail polish? Oh, yeah. Do you want to have like a hormone necklace where the necklace is just like seeping? A toe ring with slow time release. (laughs) I'm going real 90s with that. (laughs) Earrings. What else could you do? A ring. Eyebrow tattoos. Ooh. Where the ink is actually hormones. Some hair dye. I think I would go for the eyebrow tats. That sounds pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. Some lipstick you apply it every day. Ooh, that's nice. fun. So reach out to us. Let us know how would you want to get hormones into your body. Reach out to us. We're on Instagram at in16yearsofendo, and we're on the website in16years.com. 